seated. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3? We'll return to 1 John, Lord willing, next week. But this morning, we're going to look at Genesis 3.15. We saw in John 3 how the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And John goes on to talk about how there are the children of God and the children of the devil. And we get this very clearly here in the first gospel proclamation in Genesis 3.15. So we're just going to look at verse 15 this morning, but I'm going to read the entire chapter to set the context. So Genesis 3. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly, you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman between and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then Adam and then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent out of the garden of Eden to till him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every away to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Let us pray. 
Oh, Lord, our God, we know that sin is, brings great misery. Sin makes us guilty before you, and there is much corruption in our image because of sin that has come into this world. And we know that even after Adam violated that covenant of works, we are thankful for that promise of the covenant of grace. Thank you for your great salvation, even foretold, even prophesied, even promised in the seed of the woman who had come. Thank you that he came and he crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. Thank you that this is fulfilled in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are thankful that we see that salvation is always and ever has been by grace alone. And we're thankful that that comes through the unfolding of revelation, the unfolding of salvation that we see in the Old Testament and comes to its fulfillment in the New Testament. Help us as we come to understand your word in its full. Help us to uh, come and understand uh, the, the structure of scripture as we consider your covenants. Thank you that you have condescended to man by way of covenant. And we're thankful especially for that covenant of grace wherein salvation is freely offered to the elect. And we're thankful that you give us the gift of faith to receive that. Thank you that you are God. Thank you for your salvation. And we ask and pray that we would have a better understanding of that salvation as we come and consider your word. So we pray that your saints would be edified. We pray that sinners would be saved. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, sometimes you might hear someone say, as they contrast the Old and the New Testament, they might say something like, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. That's one way I can tell that someone has never actually read the Bible, because God is the same and remains the same. God is immutable, and God does not change in his love, nor does he change in his wrath. And there's a lot of mention of God's wrath in the New Testament, but there is lots of instances of God's love and grace in the Old Testament as well. You see, it is the same salvation that runs throughout all of Scripture. God has always saved sinners in Christ Jesus, whether it's by Christ to come and the promises that point to him, or in the actual coming of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see God's saving grace, and we see God's love all over the Old Testament, and we see it by way of covenant. It's how an eternal God can speak to and accommodate to finite creation. God condescends to us by way of covenant. God enters into an agreement with, uh, at various times and stages throughout redemptive history. And the overarching covenants that we see in scripture are the covenant, are the covenant of works and then the covenant of grace. And they're exactly how they sound. A covenant works is when one receives the war, a reward by doing something. It's what someone earns. It's not really a reward, but it's something someone earns. Well, the covenant of grace is a gift that is given. And certainly we see the covenant of works mentioned and we see it fleshed out in Genesis chapter 2. Adam was supposed to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does Adam do? He eats from it and brings sin and misery into this world. He brings sorrow and suffering. He brings guilt, which is the key problem that we see in Genesis chapter 3. We are guilty before God because all man has died in Adam. Our image has now been corrupted, even though it was made good. And there is misery in the world in which we live. And we see that fleshed out in the curses uh, for the serpent, the woman, and 
the man. But thankfully, God is gracious, isn't he? After the first Adam has failed and brings sin and death into the present world, we see that their God promises the last Adam would come. There is a last Adam that is needed to escape death. And we see the promise of Christ in Genesis 3.15. We see the covenant of grace promised in Genesis 3.15. We see the first gospel proclamation in Genesis 3.15. And it emerges out of this curse given to the serpent. So much so that Dale Ralph Davis titled his sermon on Genesis 3.15, Joy to the World, the Curse is Declared. Because we need the seed of the woman to come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And that's how the rest of the Bible unfolds. We are looking for him or the people were looking for the seed of the woman who would come. And we see further revelation about who this seed would be by way of other historical covenants as the Bible unfolds. And so in Genesis 3.15, after the fall of Adam, God promises the seed of the woman would save his people. This is the first gospel proclamation and God gives it right after Adam sins. And so we'll look at this first gospel under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see enmity between seeds or enemies. They are the seeds are enemies with one another, but enmity between seeds. And then we'll see the war between seeds all in verse 15. So enmity and war. So let's first look at enmity between seeds in verse 15a and b. But we must understand the setting for this curse proclamation, this gospel proclamation in and amongst this curse. And it has to do with the fall of mankind. This is where we go back to Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, or even all the way back to Genesis 1, where Adam was supposed to be fruitful and multiply and spread God's glory throughout the earth. And by the way, he, the way he in which he does that is by way, or one way is by way of covenant. So we have the covenant of works in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. Now, I know that there are some people who might say, but Mike, there's no word for covenant in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. Well, we have all the elements that, are, uh, that make up a covenant there. We have the parties, God and man. We have the stipulations, don't eat from this tree. And we have the reward, or in this case, curse. And the reward is implied, but the curse is, you eat of it, you shall surely die. So all the elements of a covenant are present, but also later on in redemptive uh, history, later on in further revelation, later revelation helps us understand earlier revelation in the book of Hosea, which we're going through in our evening service, and we will actually look at this passage next week, Lord willing, uh, Hosea prophesies, and as he's talking about how Israel violated the covenant, how Israel transgressed a covenant of works, it's not the same as the covenant of works that we see in the garden. Eternal life is never held out to old covenant Israel. Eternal life is held out here in Genesis 2. If Adam had done what was right, he could have taken from that tree of life and lived forever. But Adam does not do that. And so Israel, uh, their covenant that God makes with them is a covenant of works, but not one unto salvation. But God says, as he's comparing Israel's transgression of the covenant, he says it's like the covenant Adam or man transgressed. What is he referring to? What is Hosea alluding back to? I do believe he's alluding back to what we see in Genesis chapter 2 with this 
covenant promise or with this covenant of works and the stipulations and curses that are present there. So Genesis 2, 15 through 17, then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam had the natural law the Ten Commandments written on the heart. That is how he was to glorify God. And then he receives this covenant stipulation. Should he violate this covenant stipulation, he's going to violate all of the law of God, which is exactly what Adam does. Remember, God made man upright, but man sought out his own devices. Adam was able to sin and able not to sin. When we are born in sin because of what Adam has done, we are only able to sin. When we are saved by grace, but haven't yet entered, entered into the eternal state, when we are still pilgrims in this land, we are able to sin and able not to sin because of Christ and the changed heart that he gives. And we long for the time where we will not be able to sin, which will be in heaven. So Adam was able to sin and able not to sin. What does Adam do? Well, he brings sin and misery into this world. And we see how God was good to Adam. God gave him this mandate, be fruitful and multiply. In a lot of ways, God, not a lot of ways, the Garden of Eden really is a garden temple. What's interesting is in 1 Kings 6, as the temple is being built, there's a lot of trees that are mentioned there. In Isaiah 51, 3, prophesying about Zion and looking ahead to that new creation, he compares Zion to Eden. Or even in the book of Revelation, don't miss how Revelation, which is the end of the Bible, talks about the tree of life and laying hold of that and how it's this garden paradise. All the language that we see uh, in Genesis 2 depicts for us God's garden temple. And if it's God's garden temple, then Adam is a garden priest. And we see that language with verse 15, to tend and to keep it. This language is used for the priest in Numbers chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 4. One who was to tend and to keep the temple and the tabernacle of the Lord God most high. So Adam is a priest. Adam is a king. Adam, in a lot of ways, is a prophet as well. That's why we have comparisons between the first Adam and the last Adam. But I'll get to that uh, in just a moment. So Adam has this mandate do not eat from, you may not eat from this one tree. If you do, you shall surely die. Well, we then read Genesis 3, which we read at the outset. We see this reversal of the created order, the serpent, then the woman, then the man. And we see the deception of that serpent. We see how he just subtly twist the things of God. That's why we have to be on guard. We have to be careful. There are a lot of very uh, clear, blatant heretics out there. They're really not on our radar. It's the people that sound good. They sound truthful. They sound right. And we have to be watchful against the subtleties. And so he says language, verse four, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day of you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Another way to translate that is to you will be like gods, that you will be like God. They exchanged the glory of the eternal God for the creature. They made something that is created and made that the creator, namely themselves, knowing good and evil. And so 
The woman listens to the serpent. It looks good. It's delicious. It looks desirable. So she eats, and then Adam's right there. Remember, it's primarily Adam's fault because he is the federal head. He is the one who acts on behalf of all mankind. He is the one to whom God has given primarily this covenant of works. And Eve was to help him as he spreads God's glory to the ends of the earth. But their eyes are opened. He eats with her. He doesn't protect her. He doesn't function as the priestly leader in the home like he should be. Rather than saying, Eve, Rather than stepping, rather than bruising, rather than crushing that head of that serpent, he just lets it all happen. That's why we need the last Adam to bruise and crush the head of the serpent. So the Lord then brings judge or comes in the cool of the day. As I've said before, God's not going for a stroll. In verse 8, God is coming in the whirlwind. God is coming in judgment because of the sin that Adam has committed and the misery that he's going to bring to the world. So God comes and all of them are on trial. And then we start with the woman. We start with the the, the verdict and punishment rendered with her. There's this theophany. God appears in that cool of the day and he brings judgment. And so we see... Everybody blaming everybody else. That's one way to tell the one problem that sin is. It's also a good way to tell what true repentance is because true repentance doesn't blame shift. We don't blame everybody else. We own our own problems. We own our own sins. And notice where we get our struggles with owning our own sins. We see, well, the man said, it's this woman uh, you gave to be with me. He just was alone and God gave him this lovely lady. And now he's like, ah, it's what you gave her to me. She gave me from the tree and I ate, not taking responsibility. And then God looks to the woman, verse 13, and says to her, what is this you have done? And the woman said, it's the serpent. He did it. And I ate. Again, blame shifting going on. And so then God comes to the serpent and he says to him, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly. You shall go and on and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then we have this prophecy. We have this promise and it's in and amongst this curse. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And I love how uh, the New King James capitalizes her seed there in verse 15. And so he's judging the serpent. And we know who is behind the serpent. We know it's the devil who is behind the serpent. We know that he is that angelic being, that serpent of old, according to the book of Revelation. We saw in 1 John 3 that he has sinned from the beginning. That is, he rebelled against God's authority, and then he then tempts man into sinning as well. And so God is judging the serpent. God is, has judged the devil, and, uh, uh, and he is judging the serpent here and the devil through the serpent here. In verse 14, it's the devil and Satan behind the serpent. And so God is saying there's going to be enmity between the woman and the devil. There's going to be enmity between the woman and the serpent. And this extends to their offspring. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He's talking about those who will be of the, uh, the children of God or the sons of God and those who will be of the sons of men. He's talking about those who are of the line of good and those who are the line of 
evil. And he's referring to men. We see Genesis enmity throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. We see the seed of the serpent or seeds of the serpent. Cain, the daughters of man. Ham, Ishmael, Esau. We see this play out. But we also see the seeds of the woman as well in the book of Genesis. Abel, Seth, the sons of God. I think the sons of God there are either referring to kings or as we see from Genesis 3.15, people who are of the line of Seth. I don't think it's referring to angels there. I've said this before because angels do not have a body, right? They are spiritual beings. They do not have a body. So sons of God, seeds of the woman, Shem, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and Judah. We see this. We see these parallel seeds that are unfolding throughout the book of Genesis and the enmity that happens between them. Enmity just means hostility. And enmity refers to enemies. They are butting heads with one another, and they have done so since the beginning of time. There are those who are the children of the devil and those who are the children of God. Language that John uses in 1 John chapter 3. Language that Jesus uses in John 8 Verse 44, speaking to the Pharisees, what does Jesus say to them? You are of your father, the devil. That is difficult for people in this modern age, isn't it? That's difficult for people throughout all ages. But we see throughout the entire Bible that there is this enmity and this hostility that goes on. And it goes all the way back to what we see in Genesis 3. 15. There's going to be enmity. There's going to be butting of heads. There's going to be no neutrality. There's going to be an antithesis against the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So there's going to be enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And there is some messianic connection here with this language of enmity. Now there's enmity between seeds, but don't forget those who... Uh, once were dead in their trespasses and sins and have now been made alive. All of us who were born into sin, we once had what? Enmity with God. God once had enmity with us. God needed to be reconciled to us because he hates sin so much. And we need someone, we need the last Adam, the greater Adam, to come and bridge that chasm between God and man. There's a great ontological chasm. God is the creator. We are the creature. But there is that huge moral chasm as well because of sin that comes in. And we need that bridge, uh, that, that gap to be bridged. And that only comes from he who is the last Adam. It has to be man who does it, but it has to be the perfect sacrifice. And there's only one who is perfect, namely the son of God. That's why in God's infinite wisdom, it was the second person. The one who, who is God, to take on human flesh to be man. We needed that one. We needed him to be fully God and fully man because it was man who sinned against God. And God requires a perfect sacrifice. And thankfully, we have that perfect sacrifice in Christ. Even though he doesn't endure it in duration, he endures it in quality, doesn't he, on the cross? as he bears the wrath of God upon himself in the stead of sinners, that those who are enmity with God might be reconciled to him. Now, this enmity language is used in places that contrast and compare the first and the last Adam. If you've been here for any length of time, I should say, 
Where in the Bible does it talk about the first and the last Adam in connection? You would all say Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. If you didn't know that, jog, put that in your mind, file it away. That's where he speaks about the last, the two Adams. But Romans 5, let's look at Romans 5 first. So in Romans 5, especially verses 6 through 11, he's talking about our enmity with God and the reconciliation that God brings through the Son. When Christ dies on the cross and brings atonement for his people, uh, one uh, one, uh, word that is used to describe that is this reconciliation that he brings. And so we see in verse 10, for if when God were, uh, sorry, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That language, we were en- enemies. We were at enmity with God. But now we have been reconciled to God. How? Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Then he goes on to talk about the first Adam and the last Adam. And he says very clearly in verses 14 and 15 that Adam is a type of Christ. What is a type? An example a pattern that points ahead to the archetype. The antitype points ahead to, our, to, uh, to the main type, which is Christ himself. Or no, Christ is the antitype. I'm getting it mixed up. Christ is the antitype. Uh, the types point to the, the, the primary uh, picture, the primary uh, original. Adam points ahead to one who is Christ. That means even when Adam comes into this world, when Adam is made into this uh, world and created, he is pointing ahead to someone else who would come. And that comes in Christ, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam points to Christ to come. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. For by one man's offense, many died. Much more the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came to the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, what we see in Genesis 2 and 3. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of the righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. One man brings offense. One man brings righteousness. Adam, in his, suppo- so in his law keeping or supposed to keep the law, points ahead to Christ who would do something, who would keep the law, who would earn and do what Adam could not do. That's how enmity is overcome between God and man. It comes through Christ. And this language is also used in 1 Corinthians 15, that other to Adam's text. As Paul is talking about the importance of the resurrection, it all goes back to and is connected with Christ, who is the last Adam. So he says in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 15, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, so he's resurrected and those who are Christ at his coming. We haven't been resurrected yet, right? Last time I checked, I still haven't died yet. So I need to do that first, then be resurrected. Christ is a pledge for us that we shall be 
resurrected. Christ is the first fruits, and we are waiting for that resurrection day. And it's in him life comes. He goes on to talk about the kingdom, verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. Notice how the ending and the handing over the kingdom all happen uh, at the same time. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. He's referring to Psalm 110. You see, there is this hostility. There are enemies of God, and we who were once enemies of God are now friends of God, but we still have enemies of us because we are friends of God, don't we? See the woman, see the serpent, and the seed of the serpent is always trying to take down and remove the seed of the woman, which we'll see when we get to Revelation chapter 12. But you see, we need that Messiah. We need that one to overcome that enmity between God and man, that though we die, we might have life with him. The last Adam is that life-giving spirit whom we need. Verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so we do not need to fear death because of what that last Adam has done for his people. But we still must recognize that even now, there is the present reality of enmity between the seeds. That's why Christians are hated around the world, is it not? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. There are those who seek to take out the church because they hate the church. And there's going to be persecution and enmity. And it will always be until the world ends, right? So we shouldn't be surprised when we read about brethren being persecuted in Mexico or persecuted in China or persecuted in North Korea or persecuted wherever. There is, the, there is this enmity, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we see this with Cain, don't we? Cain hated his brother. Just as we had it explained for us in 1 John chapter 3, he envied and hated. Uh, one, one's work was righteousness and another's work was evil. Brethren, don't be surprised by that. I understand that we wrestle against principalities and powers, not flesh and blood. But how does that manifest with men, with men who hate God and hate the people of God? And as we deal with that enmity, we're not supposed to take swords and guns and fight that way. We fight through prayer, we fight through the word, we fight through preaching, we uh, fight through the spiritual things and stand fast with Christ and put on that whole armor of God, which is what we see in Ephesians 6. 1 Timothy 4 speaks about the doctrines of demons. How does that come out? It comes out by way, uh, it comes out subtly, it comes out through teaching. And even in 1 Corinthians 15, there were some who were saying, the resurrection is, there's no such thing as a resurrection. You see, there is enmity. There's butting heads. This happens and will always happen in this present world. The liberal, Protestant liberal creed of the brotherhood of man is absolutely false. And it is so because of sin. And it is so because of this antithesis and enmity between these two seeds. So don't be surprised, brethren, by hostility. Don't be surprised if the world hates you, the Lord Jesus tells us that very thing, because Jesus knows very well about this reality. So 
That is the enmity between seeds. Let's look then at the war between seeds. And who will triumph? And thankfully, the triumph comes first. We see he shall bruise your head. That is, or sorry, um, yeah, he shall bruise your head. The seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. Now, we know this is a delayed fulfillment. We know it comes in Christ. But again, the question is, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, you would be asking yourself, who is it? And you're waiting for him. You're longing for him. You want this seed of the woman to come. Is it Abraham? Is it Jacob? Is it Joseph or Judah? And then so they do something silly, and then we're still longing and waiting for them. And then the Bible continues to unfold in that way. But we're longing for this seed to come. But one thing that's interesting is, notice, it's, uh, he's talking about the woman here. He doesn't refer to the seed of man, although we know that he is the seed of man. But he says, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. I think God is being gracious here, isn't he? Now, I know Adam is the federal head. It is primarily Adam's fault. But that is an excuse that the woman is the one who was, uh, uh, was deceived first. And so God is saying, God is gracious here. Even after sin and misery come into this world, even after Eve is deceived, God says, through you, Eve, salvation shall come. And I do think there is a New Testament text that alludes to this very thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. You, or sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2. You can turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. What's interesting is this is the section that focuses on women's roles in the church. And notice it's not a cultural thing. He's not making a cultural argument, but a going all the way back to creation to argue why uh, men are supposed to be pastors in the church and not ladies. And so he says in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And do, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And then he goes on in verse 15 to soften even what is said in verses 11 through 14 doesn't change the fact that only men can be pastors. You will never see a woman pastor here. If that ever happens, that's another reason to fire me, by the way. But I don't think you would let that happen, and I would never let that happen. But not that we're against ladies, but it's what God has commanded here for his church. But he softens that blow in verse 15. Nevertheless, she Notice there's, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And what's interesting, there's been a lot of ink spilt on what this means. What does saved through childbearing mean? Well, I don't think it's talking about salvation through works. You're not saved because you bear children. That's not what it's referring to here. You're not saved by actual literal childbearing, but I think... The translation here especially needs to add another word there, the, a specific childbearing. And I don't have to, I don't want to necessarily go into all the grammar, but suffice it to say when there, uh, the da is typically dropped in the Greek, but it's there on purpose. It should say, nevertheless, she will be saved through the childbearing, referring to one singular specific one who would be born. 
that specific and special childbearing that comes from a virgin, that comes through the one who was a virgin, namely Jesus, who was born of Mary. And it was salvation. It's through faith. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so we have a very clear allusion back to Genesis 3.15, speaking about how it is through the childbearing where salvation shall come. Now, there's still going to be, we can turn back to Genesis 3.15, there's still going to be pain for ladies in childbearing. That's what we see in Genesis 3.16. We see, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In your, in your conception, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is talking about feminism, the reversal of the created order, and the reversal of what God had ordained, and sorrow and pain is still going to come and happen. And we see this throughout the Bible with leading ladies. They're all barren all the time, and then God miraculously gives them children, all pointing ahead to the one who would come through the virgin. So there's still curse. And so even amidst all that curse, even amidst all the sorrow and pain, there's still the promise for the people of God, even here, that the seed of the woman is going to come. And then Adam is cursed as well. We see this in 3:17 through 19. We see the ground is going to be cursed. There's going to be toil, thorns and thistles. It's going to be hard and difficult, sweat of your brow. And then man is going to die. The reversal of the created blessing. Joy, uh, good things, be fruitful, multiply, enjoy the, the good things of this world, life, and now there is going to be death. But even in the midst of all that, again, we see the promise of God in Genesis 3.15. And this is where we're going to do a little bit of theology here for us. This, this is what we uh, refer to, as I've said, the promise of the coming covenant of Grace. I love what our confession says, talking about salvation that is given in that covenant of grace. In chapter 7, paragraph 2, talking about this covenant of grace, moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Christ. When we preach the gospel, when we call sinners to believe, we're calling them to enter into this covenant of grace by faith. And if you believed on Christ, you are part of this covenant of grace, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. It is the gospel. And our confession goes on to say this covenant is revealed in the gospel. The historical expression of the covenant of grace is what we call the new covenant. Jesus says that the, this is, my, the, this is my, the blood shed, the new covenant in my blood. But everything prior to that, uh, the historical covenants that we see are not the same as that new covenant, but point ahead to it. So that's why our confession can say the gospel is first of all given to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. Right after the fall, we have the first gospel proclamation here in 315. And the rest of the Old Testament, as other covenants come in, we see the unfolding of God's redemptive salvation coming to its fulfillment in the new covenant. When we talk about covenant theology, which is what we're doing now, 
We're talking about how we see the structure of Scripture. How do we put the entire Bible together? It is by way of covenant, isn't it? Covenant of works, Adam fails. Promise of the coming new covenant. And so we have this broader uh, sort of focus, all man in sin. And then it narrows further with the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant is not a salvific covenant, but it's going to be the platform for where salvation comes. It is a this world covenant. God made a covenant with Noah as the head and all the, 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 the beasts of the field and all of creation that he would, know, he would not destroy the world again until that final day. It's the platform for salvation to come. It's part of that kingdom of creation. And then we narrow it further to the kingdom of Israel, which is where we have the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenant. And again, the covenant of grace is not ratified in those covenants, but it's promised in other types and shadows that point to Christ. We see God proclaims the gospel. It narrows in Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in Galatians 3, Paul says this is the gospel proclamation. And in Galatians 3, he's talking about the seed, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then it narrows further. The spiritual seed that shall come from Abraham shall come through his physical seed, which is we have the people of Israel, which where we have the Mosaic covenant, which is a covenant of works for life in the land. But even there, as God enters into covenant with them and God has them walk with him and approach unto him and dwell with him, we see types and shadows there as well. The Exodus is a type of Christ who would bring redemption. The blood of bulls and goats points to the once for all sacrifice. Honestly, just read Hebrews. Just go home today, read Hebrews, talking about the greatness of the new covenant as it's far better than the old because the old points to the new, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then it narrows further to David. Narrows further to a king who would come and how David's throne would always have a king upon that throne. And again, as the Bible unfolds, you see this king, is this the guy we're waiting for? You think it's Solomon, things are going well, and then he has all those wives, and things do not go so well. And so we're waiting for David's greater son to come. We're waiting for the Messiah. You see how the Bible unfolds in that way? How it builds upon itself to drive to the point of who our Christ is, where we finally have that fulfillment in Jesus Christ? I mean, that's the answer, isn't it? To all the Old, Old Testament, all the law and the prophet is Jesus Christ. It is all pointing to him. And then the Bible branches out again, doesn't it? To the church, not just for Jew, but for Gentile as well. The Bible does this, and it does so all by way of covenant. And everything we do even as a church is informed by way of covenant. Especially the new covenant is our covenant charter. We don't worship according to the old covenant, do we? Because we're under the new covenant. Why is it that we worship in the way that we do? Why is it that we uh, come before God who is, a, who is a consuming fire? Well, it's according to the terms of the new covenant because we're no longer under the old. And we've never been under the old because we were not part of Israel, but we are now part of the true Israel and we are the new Israel in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we do, brethren, is informed by way of covenant isn't it? How we worship, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us. It's all by way of 
covenant, even the kingdom of God, the new covenant is the kingdom charter in him. And the Noahic covenant is the covenant that should be behind uh, the, the, the nations of this world. That's why when I vote, that's why when I think about the world in which I live, think politically, I'm not doing so according to the new covenant, brethren. I'm doing so according to that Noahic covenant. You know what I look for in a leader? Someone who punishes the guilty and protects the innocent. By whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. I want someone who's good with, who allows families to thrive, to be fruitful and multiply. I want someone who allows enterprise that we might be able to be fruitful and multiply. Those are the three things that we see in the Noahic covenant. See how covenant informs all that we do. How we think about the world in which we live, even though this world is not our home, but also helps us think about how we ought to live as the people of God and what worship should look like as we are part of the new. That's why when we've talked about two kingdoms, it's covenantal. Spiritual kingdom, new covenant, common kingdom, no way at covenant. Covenant helps us, brethren, see all of scripture. Covenant helps us put the entire Bible together. And even too, as Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. You have to have the entire Bible together. The old points to Christ, and the new finds its fulfillment in him, and all of it fits together in such a blessed way. That's why Christ comes and brings in this new covenant. That's why his dying brings great salvation for such undeserving wretches like us. Covenants are glorious, and we're thankful for the covenant mediator who dies for his people, who comes, who takes on human flesh, and brings atonement. And one thing that's very interesting, when we consider the atoning work of Christ, we believe in penal substitutionary atonement. Christ bears the penalty upon himself in the stead of his people, that we might be at one with God. We might have relationship with God by way of faith. And there are many different terms that are used in scripture to describe what Jesus does by way of atonement, reconciling, expiating, removing our guilt, propitiating, turning away the wrath of God, all that sacrificial pointing back to the old covenant sacrifices that point ahead to Christ, redemption, we were once slaves, now we are purchased. But there's another term that is used as well, or another way to describe what Christ does, and that is conquest. We're not against Christ and his conquest, because the first gospel proclamation is what? Conquest. And it's what we saw in 1 John 3, 8, how the Son of God came to what? Destroy the works of the devil. Gill says, Messiah, the eminent seed of the woman, should bruise the head of the old serpent and the devil. That is, destroy him and all his principalities and powers, break and confound all his schemes and ruin all his works, crush his whole empire, strip him of his authority and sovereignty, and particularly of his power over death and his tyranny over the bodies and souls of men, all which was done by Christ when he became incarnate and suffered and died. Christ is the triumphant seed of the woman. But notice how he's going to do that. He's going to do it by way of suffering. Verse 15 of Genesis 3. You shall 
bruise his heel. There's going to be tension. There's an assurance the devil will fail, but he's going to have small victories. He is always under the leash of God. Waltke says in the interim, God leaves Satan to test the fidelity of each succeeding generation of the covenant people and to teach them to fight against untruth. Don't forget, brethren, the devil is not omniscient. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil is a created being who rebelled against God. And as we see in 1 Peter 5, he does prowl around like a roaring lion, but God has dominion over all things. That could be hard for us as well, isn't it? To recognize that God is sovereign over all things and even the devil who does certain things in this world. But it is all in God's plan, but it doesn't change the fact that the devil rebelled against God most high and doesn't change the fact that the devil still is present. But thankfully, he has lost the battle. So it's certainly we see that culmination in the crucifixion. We see the one who died on the cross. We see his heel bruised, but as his heel is bruised, he crushes the head of that serpent. Christ the Messiah strikes down the enemy when the enemy thinks he's won the battle. We see in Gen- Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 7, we see how it is the plan of God to have him be bruised. It is the plan of God that this one would suffer and die. But remember then Peter blames the Israelites and he says to them, it is because you put him on that cross. It is because of what you have done. He still holds them responsible for the sins that they engage in. How does the devil do that? Through wicked men who hate God. And even in Acts 2 and then in Acts 3 and Acts 7 as well, that's exactly how Peter and Stephen speak. It is God's plan, but you are the ones who killed him. And it was through his dying, his being bruised, that he would bring great joy and bring great triumph through crushing the head of that serpent. That's all that we see in Genesis 3, 15. All that we see in the promise that God gave, even in the midst of this curse. And what's interesting as well, God is still very gracious to Adam in verse 21 and his wife. He says, for Adam and his wife, the, uh, and his wife, the Lord also made tunics of skin and clothed them. He still kicks them out of the garden, but he still clothes them and gives them this promise that the seed of the woman would come. And one thing that we can take away from this, dear brethren, just as we have present enmity with those who are against Christ, we are thankful for the present triumph of salvation that we have in Christ. Again, salvation is the same. It is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, whether it's Christ to come or Christ who has come. Paul even says in 1 Timothy 3.15, the sacred writings are able to make one wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Old Testament there. Then he goes on to talk about in 3.16 how all scriptures God breathed, and I do believe he's including the New Testament there as well, but the Old Testament is able to make one wise unto salvation through Christ. Why? Because of the promises that we see in Genesis 3.15. And what's interesting is Paul actually takes God's triumph, Christ's triumph, and reminds us that we will triumph over the devil, Romans chapter 16. There's a lot of allusions back to Genesis 3.15, more than 
uh, perhaps I remembered, but Genesis, uh, Romans 16, as he's talking about division, as he's talking about those who have contrary doctrine to the truth, he says in verse 19, for your obedience has become known to all, therefore I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And then verse 20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That's interesting, isn't it? The God of peace will crush. The God that we have peace with through Christ will bring an end to his enemies. That's how God brings peace, doesn't it? He ends the enemy of death and he will end the enemies of God and he will end and crush Satan fully under our feet shortly just as Christ has crushed Satan under his feet. And so it teaches us this triumph that we have in Christ Jesus, this triumph that we have even now in the assurance that Satan shall be no more. Even though he prowls around like a roaring lion, one day he shall be no more. And this leads us to where we'll close with Revelation chapter 12. There is a ton of ink spilled on what the book of Revelation means. I do not believe it's chronological. The reason I believe it's chronological is because it's visionary prophecy. There's a lot of things going on in the book. And even so much so that one respected man that I appreciate a lot suggests that there could be instances of prophecy where they're talking about several different things. And one, he suggests, talks about several different things going on is Revelation 12 when we see this war breaking out in heaven. He thinks it can refer to the time when Satan first fell and then he tempts Adam. He also thinks it refers to the time when Christ triumphs on the cross, which is what I certainly think. And also looking ahead to the time when Christ is going to triumph completely when he comes again at the end of the thousand years. I'll get to that in just a second. But we see this reference to that serpent of old in verse 9. So that great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Notice again, later redemptive history tells us what's going on in Genesis 3.15. Who deceives the whole world? He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. This can happen at the beginning. This can happen and does happen with Christ on the cross. And this does and will happen when Christ comes again. The whole point of the book of Revelation is Christ has triumphed. There might be enemies we have to deal with. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil, but Christ has triumphed over all of them. Then he goes on to say in verse 10, the, this prophecy, then I heard a loud voice, this vision, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devil has come to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Christ has won the battle. Shouldn't that give us comfort when we have to deal with beasts? the beasts of the sea and the beasts of the land, which I think refer to anti-Christian religion and anti-Christian government and applies to every generation in every scenario. Christ has triumphed. That is the application that we need to hear. He has defeated that serpent of 
old. And what's interesting, this is then recapitulated in Revelation chapter 20, talking about that 1,000 years. Again, when you read Revelation, listen for repetition. Listen to moments where he's trying to bring you back and build off of what he said earlier. So we see the triumph of Christ in Revelation 12, and then we see the triumph at the end of the 1,000 years, and we see the binding of Satan. Two, Revelation 20, verse 2. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The language of binding doesn't happen very often, and it's used of Christ when he talks about binding the strong man. Remember when the Pharisees call him Beelzebub, and then Jesus says and highlights how uh, the, 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 the kingdom divided cannot stand? When we see Christ defeating and conquering and, and, and engaging in demon exorcism, we see that the kingdom of heaven is broken in and he is bound and binding the strong man. And so when does he bind the devil? At his first coming. And so then what happens? Then it's the thousand years, right? Remember, the book of Revelation is visionary. Symbols. It's not a literal 1,000 years 1,000 years just refers, in my opinion, to the time between Christ's first and second coming. And so I believe we are in the 1,000 years. And the next redemptive historical event is Christ to come back to usher in the new heavens and new earth. And I think the language of Revelation helps us here. He binds him. He casts him in the bottomless pit, sets a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more. Isn't that what happens when Christ comes and the Spirit is poured out? The gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. He shall deceive the nations no more. But after these things, he must be released for a little while before the final end. I I do believe that, but I don't know that we're going to be able to tell. But it really will happen in that way. And then what happens in the midst of that thousand years? What's the comfort for the saints in the suffering? Verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls, the souls, dear brethren, not soul and body, but the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. Though we die, dear brethren... We shall reign with Christ. Remember the intermediate state before Christ comes back, souls to God, bodies to dust. And when Christ comes again and he calls forth all the dead out of the grave, body and soul shall be reunited. But until that time when we die, bodies into the grave, souls go to be with God. And he said they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. When we die and our souls go to be with God, that is the first resurrection. That is what he's referring to here. And he goes, blessed and holy is he who has part in this first resurrection over such the second death has no power. There's the first death. And there's the second death, isn't there? Just as as we die in that first death, our souls are part of that first resurrection. And when Christ comes back and we are resurrected in that second resurrection, we do not need to fear that second death. But those who are not in Christ must fear. But 
Over such the second death has no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him one thousand years. And then he goes on to talk about Satan's final crushing uh, in that part. And then we come into the new heavens and new earth. But all this to say it's because of Christ, isn't it? That one who crushed that serpent of old, that one who crushed his head, that one who ascended into heaven, that one who reigns supreme and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and the one who shall come again. That's the comfort that we have from the entire book of Revelation, that Christ has triumphed and he shall come again. When there's enmity, when the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, we do not need to fear, dear brethren, for Christ reigns supreme over all. And if you're an unbeliever here today, will you remain an enemy or will you be a friend by faith? Believe on Christ and you do not need to fear that second death. If you do not believe on Christ, you shall be dying forever. Why won't you live to it forever through faith in Jesus Christ? Believe upon the seed of the woman and you shall be saved. Let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we are thankful for your condescension to us by way of covenant. Thank you that you accommodate to our small created minds in your word to help us apprehend the things of your, uh, of you, apprehend the things of salvation, apprehend these heavenly things. And we thank, we're thankful that you give your spirit to help us understand these things as well. We know that your spirit is the one who goes forth both to save and to give new hearts with the word but also to enlighten the eyes of your people, to cause us to grow in the things of you. And we are thankful that you remind us and tell us that there is present enmity in this world, that there is this dichotomy, the children of God and the children of the devil. But we're thankful for the present triumph of Christ. Though we suffer in this world, we shall reign with Christ forever. We are thankful that Satan, that serpent of old, has been bound. We are thankful that he no longer deceives the nations. We are thankful that even though he prowls around like a roaring lion, you're the one who establishes, you're the one who perfects, you're the one who has dominion over all things. Please help us to remember this as we read things in the news, as we have our own struggles with sin, as we have Satan who does buffet, and as we have temptations from the world, that Christ our Lord and Savior is triumphant. Help us to remember this when your people are persecuted, when your people are hated, when your people are thrown in prison, when your people are tortured, when your people are killed for the faith. Help us to remember that though we die, we shall reign with Christ forever. And thank you for the promise that Christ shall come again and we shall be resurrected and our body and soul shall be reunited. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for that for Christ who is that pledge for us in heaven. And we are thankful that we have this hope as your people. Thank you for the promise that Satan shall be crushed under our feet as well because of that seed of the woman who crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. Thank you even at that first, uh, even in that fall, even after Adam brought sin and misery into the world, we see that first gospel proclaimed and we are thankful for the unfolding of your word. Help us to love your redemptive history. Help us to love your salvation. Help us to love your word. And help us to, be, uh, to honor and glorify you in all that we do. So strengthen us, we pray. Save sinners, we pray. In all things, you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of